You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Hey, welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This is our 16th CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. Comes as the virus makes it painfully clear, not only has it never left us, it's now growing faster than ever before. It's reminded us these last few weeks that it, not us, is in control until and unless we get our act together as a nation. People asked about, uh, are we concerned about the second wave? And I keep telling people, what are you talking about a second wave? We are actually knee deep in the first wave. We've never really gotten out of it. Dr. Anthony Fauci today, who warns we could soon be seeing 100,000 new cases every single day. He's been making the rounds on radio and podcasts. Yesterday, he told the Wall Street Journal's podcast, quote, any state that is having a serious problem, that state should seriously look at shutting down. Today, he told the 538 podcast that although some states have a handle on the virus, quote, as a country, when you compare us to other countries, I don't think you can say we're doing great. I mean, we're just not. Texas and California both today reporting the highest number of COVID-related deaths ever. An alarming positivity rates, 26% of tests coming back positive in Texas, 28% in Arizona, intensive care units in both states running out of beds. And I'll tell you what, Anderson, it gets pretty ugly and pretty fast. Medical providers, support staff, uh, they're just working day after day, shift after shift, uh, stopping only to rest, to eat, sometimes to call the next of kin. It's tough work, and that's what it looks like on the ground in Texas and Arizona right now, like New York did, you remember, during the worst of the outbreak there. Yeah, tonight we're going to talk about how we got to this point and, most of all, how to reverse the trend. And with the school year just weeks away, we'll try to answer the questions millions of parents and kids now have about when, how, and even whether to go back to the classroom. CDC Director and White House Task Force member Dr. Robert Redfield is at the center of the controversy over guidelines for that right now. He joins us and we'll be taking your questions as well. We've been getting a lot of those questions already. You can see them there on our social media scroll down at the bottom of your screen. You can also tweet us your question with the hashtag CNNTownHall or leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. We're also gonna be playing as many of your video questions tonight as we can for Dr. Redfield and for our other experts as well tonight. In addition, reports from across the country and around the world, including Brazil, second only to the U.S. now in new cases. And we start with where this country is right now. More than 133,000 people in the United States have died from the coronavirus. And there are now more than 3 million confirmed cases. In the last 28 days alone, 1 million new infections were reported. 33 states are seeing their numbers rising. This country is now averaging more than 52,000 new cases a day. Just a few days ago, we were aghast that we'd hit 50,000. Without a national strategy and a roadmap, uh, we'll quickly accelerate to 100,000 cases. Florida, Arizona, California, and Texas are all seeing sharp spikes. Hospitals in those states are quickly reaching capacity. The mayor of Phoenix says they will soon be overwhelmed. We need medical professionals, we need testing kits, we need supplies immediately. Our hospitals are already in dire straits. Hard-hit areas may have to tighten their restrictions. And the school year is just weeks away in some states, with no federal mandate on how to keep students and teachers safe. We are in a much worse place, actually, than we were back in March. Because at that time, there was one epicenter. Now we have multiple epicenters all around the country. There is reportedly progress on a vaccine. Dr. Anthony Fauci says he's still cautiously optimistic we'll have one by the end of the year. And clinical trials for an inhaled version of the drug remdesivir have begun, which would improve treatment options for doctors. Despite President Trump's claim we're in a good place in the pandemic, the virus is by no means contained. I think it's important to tell you and the American public that I'm very concerned because it could get very bad. Well, Dr. Fauci has certainly got the country's attention this week. His voice was only part of a picture that includes many developments. That's right, uh, Anderson. Since our very first town hall, we have been hammering this point that we know we need more testing. 
We started late out of the gate on testing. We've never caught up on testing. We used to talk about a day where testing could be done so easily that not only would you know if you had the virus, but you could also be reasonably certain that those around you didn't have the virus either. We're not there yet, not even close. We know that as cases continue to rise, younger people are contributing to this uptick. More than 50% of new coronavirus cases in Los Angeles are 18 to 40 years old. A third of new cases in Detroit are people aged 20 to 29. Now, interesting, we know younger people are less likely to get sick, but we don't really know for sure is how age affects the transmissibility of the virus. Is it harder to contract? Is it easier to spread to others? That's going to be a key factor as we talk about sending kids back to school tonight. We're not even sure why kids are less likely to get infected. Some have recently suggested it may have more to do with the fact that kids, especially little ones, have largely been home since March. Also, finally, Anderson, treatment-wise, lots of news about hydroxychloroquine. Again, another observational study, one that showed benefit but also reminded us why observational studies are so hard to interpret. For example, the majority of the people receiving hydroxychloroquine in this new study were also receiving a steroid medication, which had already been shown to greatly benefit patients. So how do you know that? Was it the hydroxychloroquine or was it the steroid? That's why you do randomized controlled studies. They are the gold standard, which by the way, have been done for hydroxychloroquine and showed no benefit. That's why the NIH, the WHO halted their trials. It's why the FDA revoked its emergency use authorization of the drug. The gold standard studies showed it had no, had no benefit. Frankly, Anderson, looking at an observational study result after a randomized controlled study is kind of like doing an ultrasound to determine the gender of a baby after the baby is already born. <laughs> you don't really need that ultrasound, right? You already know yeah. the answer. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it is, because I mean, now Brazil's president has talked about hydroxychloroquine as being something he's taking that is, is helping him. Uh, obviously, he's embraced this uh, early on, uh, despite the, uh, the scientific, lack of scientific evidence. Uh, a major development in big money college sports, the Big Ten Conference announcing today that all autumn sports, including football, will play a conference-only schedule, no interconference games at all. Uh, I know you went to Michigan. Can you really explain that to me? Because I really don't know what that means so much. <laughs> Get to you but, later on that. <laughs> yeah. More now from around the country. CNN Sarah Seidner is in Los Angeles for us. So, Sarah, California was one of the first states shut down, re- reopened slowly, and yet they are now seeing a huge jump in cases. What happened? Yeah, it's what everybody fear. You know, California, as you mentioned, one of the hardest hit of 33 states that are seeing a rise in coronavirus cases. And I can tell you that in Los Angeles County, which is the most populous county, not only of the state, but of America as a whole with more than 10 million people, it, the mayor says, is partly due to younger people. And we heard Sanjay allude to this. People between the ages of 18 and 40 apparently are those who are really helping to spread this virus because now they're looking at the rates they're being positive. More than 50% of the people who are testing positive for this virus are in that group. Now that number just a few weeks ago was 30% of the people being tested positive for coronavirus. And so you are seeing this trend. The mayor is imploring younger people to please follow the guidelines to save lives and to keep people out of hospitals. Really, the worst has happened. It's the thing that everybody had feared. It started opening up, and now we're seeing not only that coronavirus cases are rising, but hospitalizations. The people going into the hospital with COVID-19 are on the rise. It jumped about 40% over the past 14 days. We have also seen uh, the the number of the, the rate of infection has also gone up here. And while we know that right now at Los Angeles County, again, lots of people here, more than 10 million, there are enough hospital beds. There is a worry about ICU beds. And if this trend continues, whether they can handle that number of people, they really want to get it down. We know that at least in one county here, in Yolo County, they have reported they are out. They have zero ICU beds available. And we also have a grim number here from California. 149 people died of the coronavirus today here in the state. That is the highest daily death toll that we have seen since the pandemic began here. Hmm. And in addition to the ICU beds, as you know, you need to have respiratory therapists and other people to make sure people can actually get the care. Uh, Sarah, we've also seen that, you know, Dr. Fauci talked about Florida and Arizona having opened up too quickly. What, What is the latest you've heard there? I'm going to start with Arizona. They are in a world of hurt. There is an analysis of John Hopkins data that basically shows that Arizona, its uh, rate of infection is about 25%, which means that about one in four people who are tested are coming back positive. 
uh, with the coronavirus. We've heard from an epidemiologist, and you mentioned Dr. Fauci also saying, why is this all happening? Probably because the state aggressively reopened, and there are some folks out there who have just completely given up or did never want to follow all of the guidelines, like wearing a mask when you're in an, an area around people, like self-distancing, like staying around just those who are in uh, the confines of your home. That is not happening, and masks aren't mandated uh, across the state. Some cities are starting to mandate them there. There is a lot of worry in Arizona. Florida also facing a major uptick in cases and deaths. Mm. Sir, Sanjay and Anderson. Thanks. Sir, thanks very much. More now on Brazil and President Bolsonaro, who has mocked the virus and was infected by it. Sadly, his was just one of tens of thousands of new cases in recent days. Brazil now ranks second only to the United States in confirmed cases and in deaths. And in the hills outside Sao Paulo, drone footage tells the story row after row of newly prepared graves. None likely will stay empty for long. The way things are going, none will be the last. CNN's Bill Weir is in the capital city, Brasilia. He joins us now. So, Bill, what's the latest there and what's being done to try to deal with this spread? Well, the latest, uh, Anderson, about another 40,000 or so confirmed cases, another 1,100 fatalities. They're closing in on close to 70,000 uh, tragic deaths due to COVID-19. But the testing here, you got to keep in mind, is one-sixth of what's happening in the United States. So most experts think those numbers are, are vastly underreported by a factor of 10. And as we've seen and as we've been discussing, you know, from South Korea to Sweden, this virus has really laid bare uh, the strength of communities and the smarts of the people in charge. And it's no coincidence, I suppose, that no, number one and number two on the worst categories these days are led by sort of cult of personality leaders. And just for context, Jair Bolsonaro, a longtime congressman here in Brasilia, far right wing, former military officer who was best known for singing the praises of the days of the dictatorship. Uh, he's sort of proudly homophobic, uh, proudly racist in a lot of his comments. And so from, from very early on, he has bucked conventional wisdom, threw out a couple of health ministers who tried to just have him adhere to the most common sense public health standards. And all along, his diagnosis has been, take this hydroxychloroquine, uh, anti-malarial, it's pretty common in the tropics, and get back to work, especially if you're under 40. Uh, and you've seen that that didn't flatten the curve, that fattened the curve in the most uh, tragic ways. And it doesn't look like he, his own bout with the disease is sort of converting him to science. In fact, his former health minister told me he thinks the opposite will happen. He'll come through it with mild symptoms and say, see, I told you so. I'm the model for what can happen for the rest of us. Hmm. And he even has his military planning missions to take this hydroxychloroquine into indigenous areas and giving it to, to tribes in the Amazon and beyond. At the same time, President Bolsonaro today vetoed a proposed law from Congress that just would have guaranteed hospital beds, clean water and disinfectant for those tribes. Some 850,000 native Brazilians so vulnerable in places. And if you can imagine if ICUs are filling up in Florida and Texas, what they must be like around here, even in the federal district around Brasilia, 99% capacity in their ICUs. Yeah. Bill Weir, I'm glad you're there. Thank you for uh, reporting on it. Joining us now, White House Coronavirus Task Force member and director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Robert Redfield. Dr. Redfield, thanks so much for being with us. Um, yesterday, the president tweeted saying, I disagree with CDC Gov on their very tough and expensive guidelines for opening schools. While they want them open, they're asking schools to do very impractical things. I'll be meeting with them. Then shortly after the, the vice president announced, with you standing by his side, he, he said this. The president said today we just don't want the guidance to be too tough. Uh, and that's the reason why next week uh, CDC is going to be issuing a new set of tools. And then our Caitlin Collins then asked you at that same uh, press conference, if you're changing the guidance because the president said he doesn't like it, you didn't answer the question. So I just want to give you another opportunity because it does sound like the CDC is caving to the president's demand to essentially weaken guidelines to make them less tough. I know a lot of thought was put into those guidelines. Now, all of a sudden, you're issuing new ones? Thank you, Anderson. First, uh, I want to really stress that the, the purpose of the CDC guidelines are to uh, provide a variety of different strategies for schools to use to help facilitate the reopening of schools. Now, I can tell you that those guidance that we put out are out, um, and uh, they stand. Uh, we do continue to provide additional material and actually had planned 
uh, for some time to add some resources or consideration documents to help uh, better understand the guidance, particularly for communities that are opening K through 12s. Uh, we have a, another document for parents and caregivers, how to plan for your kid to go back to school. So you're another saying you're document not, for... You're saying you're not putting out new guidelines, but I mean, the vice president just said it all right there. He said, we don't want them to be too tough, so you're going to be releasing new tools. I know you said you had already planned this. It sure seems like a coincidence now that these are going to show up next week, um, especially because usually these things take so much time to go through. I don't understand, uh, either recommendations are based on science or, or they're not, why, why come out with new ones if all of a sudden, you, these guidelines were worked over for a long time. Yeah, they're not new guidelines that we're coming out with, uh, Anderson. We've started the guidance for K through 12 back in February and higher learning back in March. We continue to update them. The guidance that we put out uh, uh, recently uh, for K through 12 and, and uh, higher learning is our guidance. We continue to expand that with different tools like I was trying to complete. We have a tool to help uh, schools understand how to t uh, test for symptoms. We have a tool coming out on how to use face masks in the school setting. We have a tool coming out for parents to understand a checklist of understanding whether their child should come out to school. So uh, the vice president was referring to the additional tools that we have that we're planning out, but we're not, there's not a change in our guidance. But you know the we'll criticism. We'll continue to work with each. Right, you know the criticism that the we'll CDC continue. has already received, which is, uh, you know, months ago, there were guidelines, uh, or I should say weeks ago, guidelines for churches. Uh, those guidelines were, you know, pushed back on hard by the White House. You ended up taking out a recommendation uh, to not have choirs singing in enclosed spaces, which sounds like a pretty good recommendation based on the super spreader cases we've seen and people in choirs getting sick and people in church churches getting sick. That was removed. Uh, there was a guidance uh, an extension of, of uh, for cruise ships months ago that the CDC removed under pressure from the White House. So it does seem, you know, critics are saying now CDC is folding to political pressure from this White House. Well, that's not correct. We continue to give the best guidance. It is correct to think that these guidances frequently go through an interagency process. Uh, where different agencies have an opportunity to make recommendations towards those guidances. But I can tell you we continue to put out the best public health guidance that we believe is important for the public health of this nation and to confront this pandemic. D Dr. Redfield, I'm, I'm curious specifically about schools in part as a doc but also as a, as a dad. When you look at this guidance, and parents obviously want to make sure their kids are as safe as possible, how how good is the evidence when you talk about things like the masks, the six feet uh, distancing, and you look at just the impact in schools overall, how good is the evidence in terms of uh, how we can decrease the spread, at least within schools, among kids? You know, Sanjay, it's really important. And I think one of the important things to put into the formula is, and I've said this, why I believe it's so important from a public health point of view to reopen these schools. I think, you know, when you look at the public health implications on mental health services that many of these students get or nutrition or just the socialization, that clearly we're looking at giving schools guidelines of a variety of different strategies that they can use to try to minimize acquisition of COVID-19, whether it's the social distancing, whether it's the mask, whether it's how to a space to desk, whether it's the scheduling, whether it's the uh, decrease in the number of individuals, whether it's uh, closing common spaces like cafeterias and gym, whether it's not sharing uh, different objects. But at the end of the day, these guidances are just that. They're guidances which the local schools and local school districts need to then to incorporate into a practical, real uh, plan that they can operationalize uh, to begin to get these uh, young people back to school safely. And, you know, we continue to, uh, the, one of the other uh, resources that we're working to put together now for schools is an evaluation and monitoring system so we can understand mm. really how effective these schools' plans are on limiting COVID transmission within the context of the school. Do you agree with the president that the guidelines that were published by the CDC that are up there now are too tough and too, in some cases, too ex expensive and impractical? 
I think Anderson, that's a, a sort of a mischaracter. I mean, characterization. I mean, the guidance. That's what are the president there, said. And well, I'm saying the guidance are there, and um, the guidance are there with a series of different strategies, which then each local jurisdiction can decide how they want to use those strategies. So uh, we stand by our guidance. We think it's an important uh, um, strategy for uh, helping these schools reopen. But I want to come back and just but no, but I don't understand. make I, it really you, clear. You said it's a mischaracterization. I, I wanna, Do you mean it's make, a mischaracterization uh, by the President of the United States that the guidelines are too no, tough? Not by, no, not by, so not by it, the President. By but I, I, do th I, I do think there are individuals that may say, this needs to be done, this needs to be done, this needs to be done. In reality, what we're saying is these are guidances, these are not requirements, and each school district's gonna look at how they can incorporate those guidances to make their school uh, in, a, in a situation where they can reopen, um, reopen safely. Uh, I just wanna come back to that, that that's the purpose, to be clear, the purpose of our guidance is to help facilitate schools to reopen and give them a variety of different strategies that we believe have uh, an important role in limiting the ability of this virus to transmit in the school setting. And that's where we're gonna continue to uh, work with jurisdictions. If jurisdictions do feel that there's obstacles to it, we're gonna work with them to see how we can find a common answer because we wanna get these uh, kids back in school. Do you, do you have confidence though that anyone is really gonna listen to these guidelines? Because you know you put out guidelines and, and the Coronavirus Task Force with great fanfare put out guidelines about how states should reopen with very carefully thought out stages. I don't think any of the states that reopened followed those guidelines or f certainly followed the stages of waiting for a certain number of you know cases to uh, to fall to a certain level you must well, be you frustrated know, one thing as I can a say, scientist I can say I, well I can say and I know I've seen the joy that you have now as a new father I happen to be a grandfather of 11 I can say that I think there's commonality in the schools and the school leadership and the teachers and the administrators that we all want to protect the safety of of the children that are in schools that's really extremely important to all of us and so I have um, a higher degree of confidence that the schools are going to look at this very seriously and how to operationalize these guidances in a practical way uh, to get schools open because I want to come back to the comment that I made earlier that there's really a public health price that we're paying by not having these schools open. And I think right. we need to really get that balance, get these schools back open. And um, right. we're I, gonna just continue the, the to work is, with all you're the saying sounds very rash. Sorry, I don't, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, continue. No, I was just gonna say, we're gonna work with the school districts uh, to really work to basically get uh, practical uh, situations that they can reopen their schools safely we're going to monitor, uh, obviously, uh, these guidances in the school setting to see that we're really not seeing significant transmission and, um, and allow the, the young people to get back and have the right. benefits of an education. All, all of that sounds rational and science-based, uh, but the president who you are working for and, and you know, uh, taking direction from is saying that schools who do not reopen will lose funding um, and he says that the guidelines you put out to reopen are too tough, too expensive, and too impractical. So uh, I'm not sure how you have confidence that, uh, that they're going to be listened to or that schools are not going to be, in fact, punished by having pandemic funding removed from their budgets. Well, again, Anderson, uh, I, I'm confident that there's a joint commitment to protect the safety and public health of the students in these schools and okay. that we're working uh, we're working to help accomplish that i'm i'm confident that that obviously uh is uh what the president wants that's the confident that that's what the cdc wants and i'm confident that's what the teachers and the administrators in school wants we want to get these schools open safely and that's what this is about and it's 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 going to be uh effort and we're going to have to work together to get this accomplished all right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, more questions for Dr. Redfield. We got, we got plenty on schools as well, what, as well as what the federal government is doing to make sure they are safe for kids and grown-ups alike. And later, what campus life might look like. What if colleges open, reopen, and there's in-person learning? How's it all going to play out? That and more 
as CNN's Global Town Hall continues. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. We're back, CNN Global Town Hall number 16, taking your questions for CDC Director Doc, uh, Dr. Robert Redfield. Uh, Dr. Redfield, um, I, w- I want to go back in time a little bit. Uh, the CDC was warned that more needed to be done almost from the start. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Engel, who's from the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, told CNN that on many conference calls in January, uh, they were telling the CDC, the CDC was being told that testing needed to be expanded and that the virus was probably already circulating in early January. That seems like a, a significant issue. Why wasn't, the, why wasn't the CDC listening to these warnings and doing more at that time? Well, you know, Sanjay, I think it's important. We've looked uh, from a variety of different uh, evidence lines to see if, in fact, that was true. You know, we had the first case reported in January, mm-hmm. uh, I think 22nd, uh, and we've gone back and looked both in the flu surveillance studies in, in, in Seattle, we've looked by antibody testing in the, in, the, in the region back then, we've looked by genomic evolution of the virus, we've looked by claims data with uh, C, uh, CMS, and we published this in our MMWR. There really was not evidence of significant circulation of the virus prior to m- mid to the end of February. Uh, obviously, then after that, we had substantial seeding of the virus, particularly coming from Europe. So I think first that's important. Um, developing the test was an important issue. We've been through that. Uh, getting the private sector to come on board to develop testing was obviously slower than any of us would like. Uh, I think now we do have a robust capacity, but as you've noted, uh, we continue to have greater needs for more testing. And even though we're now up over 600,000 tests a day, we continue to need more testing in this country to confront this outbreak. And um, I anticipate that that um, uh, capability will continue to come. Uh, But I do think it's important that really there wasn't significant circulation back in January and February. I think we have strong scientific evidence to support that conclusion. But clearly, there's significant transmission across the country now. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, it's interesting because you, you look at some autopsy data even from uh, January, and there may be some evidence that maybe there was, there was spread. But nevertheless, I, the reason I ask, the CDC has traditionally been this preeminent health organization all over the world. I mean, they are the place people go to for trust and guidance. And, and, I, and I worry, I think, I'm sure you worry that some of that trust, a lot of that trust has been squandered because of those testing failures. Dr. Peter Lurie, a former associate commissioner at FDA, told the New York Times, quote, uh, that there, there, this is now an agency that's been waiting its entire existence for this moment, and they mostly flubbed it. Sad, he said. Um, what, why, do you agree with that assessment? I mean, the CDC is this preeminent health organization. I've been saying for some time, covered the CDC for 20 years, saying for some time they should have been given the keys to the kingdom, handle this thing from the start, but they didn't. Instead, Peter describes it as as flubbed. What do you say to that? Well, I I obviously don't agree with that assessment uh, from Peter. I do think the CDC remains the premier public health institution in the world. We have really thousands of outstanding men and women that uh, work 24-7 to serve uh, this nation, both with this pandemic and other other threats. I do think there's been a mischaracterization about, quote, the flub. We developed a test, as I've mentioned to you before, literally within within probably seven to ten days from the sequence. That test was developed at CDC to put eyes on this outbreak for our health departments. That test was never flawed. It works fine today as it did then. When we did try to expand that test to give it to each of the local health departments, there was a manufacturing problem in one of the reagents that had to be corrected that took about five weeks. Uh, and then we it corrected was that sloppy for lab the public work, health labs. But, but, the, but the defect, the real defect from my point of view in the whole response mm. was that the private sector took a long time to get involved to provide testing for the medical community at large. Wait a minute. The, you think the defect is in the private sector? I understand the the, the difficulty of you know moving things just from state labs to private sector. That wasn't done fast enough. Um, but there was there was basically just sloppy lab work, according to the New York Times, in the test kits themselves. And as you said, that delayed things for five weeks. Five weeks is, I mean, that's a critical five weeks. 
Well, I will say that there was evidence in the inquiry that was done that there was contamination, and again, that contamination was corrected. I will say, Anderson, and I think you know that if you look historically about the pace in which we were able to develop a laboratory test for this new virus and deploy it, even with that five-week delay, uh, was is really still one of the most rapid engagements of a yeah, but, but your laboratory test wasn't all that, from what I understand, and, and I may be wrong. I'm certainly no scientist, and, and you are a very respected scientist. I should point out, um, and and a very well respected doctor. Um, my understanding is the test that all that that was quickly developed essentially wasn't that much better than the tests that were already out there overseas. Hmm. Well, uh, the test is an excellent test. I'm not going to compare it to others, but right. again, the ability well, it's important for to compare it to others because to be used, you're used, waiting to do your yeah, own test, yeah, and then then there's sloppy lab work that delays no. that test for five weeks, and there's other tests yeah. overseas that are already available. That's that's not a true assessment, Anderson. And uh, I want to just uh, point out that for any uh, tests that want to come into the United States, they have to come in through the FDA and regulatory process. That there was not another test available in the United States for the use at that time. The first test that was available in this nation was the test that CDC was able to develop uh, within the, the first 10 days after the sequence was available in January. Right, uh, but it doesn't 10th. matter how fast you develop it. If you, a, if you mess up the lab work and you can't get the test kits out, it's five weeks, it's gone. Well, the lab test was always available at CDC. You just had to ship it to Atlanta. All right, so it was never not available But but that's disingenuous because you know that the criteria that CDC was early on using was so specific was people who had been in Wuhan. In fact, there was uh, an example, I think, of uh, doctors in in, uh, Seattle or in Washington who sent or recommended some 600 uh, different individuals to be tested. CDC only approved some 200 or so of them because the criteria you were using was so limited because you weren't fo- fo- focusing on asymptomatic spread. Even though on CNN in February, I believe, you yourself said asymptomatic spread might be a problem, but the CDC really didn't emphasize that publicly until later in March, I think. Yeah, there's no doubt that the early uh case definition of using this test was narrowly linked to travel. I will say that no one ever precluded uh, other universities or other state health departments that we published exactly how to get the test from developing the test themselves. Um, So again, I I do think CDC uh, doesn't get a fair knock on this one. We developed the test rapidly. Um, and in the attempt to make it easier for the states in manufacturing, there was a manufacturing problem. Uh, I can tell you that the CDC won't be manufacturing tests when we develop them. We'll contract the manufacturers to develop tests in the future. But I do think we really did a major public health service to the nation to develop that test. And again, I think one of the lessons from this whole outbreak that I hope we learn Um, It's obviously something that Korea learned from MERS to now was to get a better linkage with the private sector to come in alongside the public health sector to develop the diagnostic requirements that we need for the practice of medicine in this country. You know, Dr. Refi, I think part of the reason we're asking so much about testing is because I think there's still this sort of question, was testing minimized? Did we, did, we, did we not do enough tests for some purposeful reason? The president still talks about testing. He, st- he was tweeting this week. He said for the hundredth time, the reason we show so many cases compared to other countries uh, that haven't done as well is that our testing is much bigger and better. We've tested 40 million people. If we did 20 million instead, cases would be halved, et cetera, not reported. D- d- I mean, what do you make of that? Does that hurt? the effort to combat the virus, to expand testing. My wife and girls who got tested the other day, they waited four hours to get their testing still. I mean, that, that's, that's now in July. Uh, why, why is it still so challenging? Has testing been minimized or at least not accelerated proper, appropriately in this country? You know, I don't think, Sanjay, it's been minimized, but I will echo that it is a critical piece and that, you know, I've always said we need readily accessible timely results testing it's fundamental and why don't we still have it though why why don't we have that july 9th why don't we have that right now why can't i get a test and be comfortable knowing that i don't carry the virus if i'm going to see anderson in the office know that he doesn't have the virus why aren't we at that point now well i I have to say it's probably just the overall production uh, capacity you know that it's still increasing 
as I said, it's gone from, you know, not long ago when it was 20,000 cases uh, test a day, and now we're over 600,000. But it's not to say that we're there. I mean, we do need more testing. We do need more breakthroughs. We, knew, we need more rapid testing that can get results in real time. And, uh, and I think, you know, we were glad that Congress uh, gave the CDC over $10 billion uh, for the purpose for us to give money to the states so they could develop more testing. We got that money out probably four to six weeks ago uh, for them to be able to have more capacity to do testing. Uh, so there is still a great need for expanded testing in this nation. There's a great need uh, for expanded uh, manufacturing of tests for the, by the private sector because I think the demand is only going to continue to increase. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the man you're working for is lying about testing. He's saying that, that the only reason we have the cases that we do is because we're testing so gosh darn much uh, when that is just not true. Um, Dr. Fauci told the Wall Street Journal yesterday that, quote, any state that's having a serious problem, that state should seriously look at shutting down. It's not for me to say because each state is different. Do you agree? I mean, should states like Florida, Texas, Arizona, California that are seeing huge increase in the number of infections is shutting down something just from a, you know, as a doctor, as a scientist that they should look at? Well, I think the most important thing, uh, Anderson, that we need to do and what they have, I think we started to do is first and foremost is we have to, uh, everyone's got to be wearing a face covering in public. All right. It is really, I think, uh, one of the important things. I said we're not defenseless against this virus. If we social distance and wear face coverings, we can really interfere with the human-to-human -human transmission of this virus. Secondly, we've got to practice uh, hand hygiene. Third, right. do you say we this do to have the president, to shut though? Because, I mean, you we know do the president to, has the biggest can, bully pulpit. We, we do. I do want to finish. We do have to shut down targeted business that uh, foster irresponsible behavior like bars. And so it is very selective, but it is powerful. I will say one thing, one thing we've done in our household studies where we looked at how does this virus transmit in households, it's very interesting. Those households where the index case was diagnosed and they really practice just what I said, they, they practice uh, social distancing and face coverings, there wasn't household transmission. And those households that chose not to do that, there was more than 70 percent of the individuals in those households are transmitted. So don't, uh, we need to reinforce that social responsibility that we all have of basically social distance and wearing a mask. And we've not been able to reach effectively the millennials and the Generation X. And again, tonight I appeal to them. This is our tools. You're seeing the outbreak increase in a number of states across this nation, a number of metropolitan areas. The most important, powerful weapon we have is please, all right, social distance, please, wear a mask when you're in public please wash your hands and please basically let's not let's not be going to bars right now it's just not the time for us to do that yeah i mean actually the most you know powerful and important ally you could have on your side would be a president of the united states who says what you just said um but again the person you work for does not say that at all in fact undercuts everything you say virtually everything you say your recommendations your guidelines you're urging people to wear masks uh, with his own tweets and his own statements. And, and I'm, I'm sad that you're in that position and that we're all in that position. Um, but Dr. Redfield, uh, I, I respect you. You are a very respected doctor in your field, and uh, I, I wish you the best in, in your work. It's not easy. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, doctor. Well, thank you just, very much. God bless you. Just thank ahead. You. More, thank you so much. Thank yep. you. More on the dilemma faced by colleges, universities, over whether it's safe to open up in the fall, and just as importantly, what's at stake for kids in K-12 classrooms. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. at the bottom of your screen, you'll see our social media scroll that shows the questions people are asking. You can tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Back now with Sanjay. I uh, also want to bring in our veteran of our town halls, Dr. Lena Wen. She's an emergency room physician and the former Baltimore Health Commissioner. Uh, I want to get to as many viewer questions as possible. Dr. Wen, Anna in Georgia sent in this video on schools reopening. Let's take a look. Hi, um, my question is, um, I'm completely torn on whether or not to allow my 17-year-old son to go back to school for his senior year. We live in Georgia, and it's become a hot spot. 
while we are extremely careful and wear masks in public, wash our hands and social distance, I know for sure he will not be able to wear a mask and keep a mask on throughout the entire day. And with having to switch classes every 45 minutes or so, surrounded by thousands of kids, I'm scared he may catch it or bring it home to me. He has asthma and it could be devastating. On the flip side, keeping him secluded and alone all day, I know for a fact is not healthy either. I've weighed both the pros and the cons, but both are equally scary. Any advice for a single mom of a rising senior in the midst of a pandemic? This is just beyond anything we've ever had to deal with. It's such an important question that Annie's asking. I mean, mm. what, what do you recommend, doctor? Wow, this is so hard, and I think this is that kind of challenging decision that's facing so many different families and teachers, too. You know, my mother was a longtime school teacher in Los Angeles, and she was passed away, but she had breast cancer and was on chemotherapy the, the whole time that she was teaching full-time. And I think teachers also want to come back to in-person instruction, but it's just really hard because of their health conditions, too. So I don't have answers for Annie, but here are some questions to be asking. I would ask about what is the prevalence of the virus in your community. I would also ask about your risk factors. So Annie mentioned your sons um, having asthma, and asthma could increase the risk of getting severe COVID-19. But also, what about you? Are you relatively healthy, or do you have other risk factors? What about other people living in your household? Think also about the um, what are the procedures that the school has been putting into place, and also about whether remote instruction is available as an option for vulnerable students and teachers, too. And yeah. I know Sanjay has kids in Georgia and may have other ideas, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, that's a good point. And I think that the, the idea that we still don't have a lot of data that's informing these recommendations, I mean, that, that's the thing that I was sort of struck by with Dr. Redfield even. I mean, they make these recommendations, we're, what, six, seven months into this. We're still not sure exactly how much kids transmit this virus. There's, there's been some contact tracing studies to, to suggest they get it less. But in terms of giving it more, we're, we're not sure about that. We know they're less likely to get sick, and all these things play, play a role. But as you mentioned, Lena, um, Georgia, the numbers are going up. So every community, I think, has to look at this community by community based on what's happening there. If you, the numbers are going up or they're high, the chance that you're going to come in contact with somebody who is carrying the virus is going to be higher. It's, it's as simple as that. And that's got to be a, a part of the equation as well. Yeah. Uh, Sanjay, I know you made a video about kind of looking at a school and, and what it might be look like going back. Let's take a look. So I have three girls going into 10th grade, 8th grade, and 6th grade. So as you might imagine, what's going to happen this fall is topic number one in our household. What's going to happen with schools? The American Academy of Pediatrics, they've been very clear on this. They say kids physically in school is key to their development. But we also know that case numbers continue to rise across the country. It's still not entirely clear just how transmissible especially young kids are. We know they're less likely to get sick, but how likely are they to contribute to the spread? We also know for sure that schools are gonna to have to do everything they can to try and keep kids safe. So it's gonna look a lot different when you get to school this year. Now, if there's anything we know about this virus, it's that it doesn't like masks, so those are gonna be required in all schools, and it doesn't like distance. So you see here, uh, the desks and the teacher's area all six feet apart, well aware that a lot of school districts can't possibly do this. All the desks facing in the same direction, if there's any virus in the area, you want it going in one direction as opposed to mixing. Also, there's this idea of cohorting. That means that the same students would be together all day long. Less spread, less mixing that way. And also, if somebody does get sick, it's easier to contact trace. Another thing schools are going to have to think about, trying to reduce areas where children will congregate. Uh, think about uh, staggered start times, for example. Rotating classrooms, one-way hallways, and possibly even getting rid of common locker areas. And another thing schools might start doing is having outdoor classrooms, or at least opening the windows to improve the ventilation in indoor classrooms. At the end of the day, every family is gonna to have to look at the risks and the rewards of sending their kids back to school. Also pay attention to what's happening in your community. Is the virus increasing or is it decreasing? That may play a factor in your decision. And finally, use the rest of the summer to get your kids used to wearing masks, which they're gonna to have to do, and of course, washing their hands as much as possible. 
Huh? All good advice. Uh, we're going to, Dr. Wen, thank you so much for being with us. We're going to stay on the topic of schools. I want to bring in uh, Scott Galloway, uh, who's a, a professor uh, at uh, the NYU Tisch School. Uh, professor Galloway, you, when you look at the landscape for the upcoming fall semester, universities are all over the map on what they're doing, whether it's full in-person instruction, online, full online learning. How do you see this playing out? So I think we're moving towards, or I would say we're exiting the consensual hallucination phase where we thought things would be somewhat back to normal. And right now you have a spectrum of Harvard going online um, or a hybrid and then all the way to Purdue that's still claiming they're going to welcome kids back to campus. A lot has changed. The curve, unfortunately, has not been crushed, much less flattened. And I think we're coming to the realization that there won't be any in-person classes I believe that over time we will decide probably not to invite students to these small towns that I don't think are prepared for outbreaks. So I think slowly but surely we're headed towards a recognition that universities and academic institutions are the warriors against this virus, not not the spreaders or the enablers. And I think slowly but surely we're moving to an all online fall semester, Anderson. Wow. You, you, you've talked about uh, Harvard uh, going fully digital for, for their fall semester. And I know you say that the people are putting in their deposits now, paying their tuition, and then are going to be told that they're going to be going digital, whatever it may be. But Harvard's classes, you, you actually compared to Netflix, which is an association that I'm, I'm not sure any university wants to hear. What did, what did you mean by that? Well, someone's snarky, but there's some insight here. If you don't have the experience and you don't have in-person then effectively what you have is an institution that spends billions of dollars on content and then streams it to you over broadband. And that looks, smells, and feels somewhat similar to Netflix and Disney Plus who are charging you $120 a year and $80 a year, and now Harvard is effectively a streaming service charging $58,000 a year. So a, a lot of the reason that universities have been so reticent to acknowledge that we're going fully digitally, digital and fully online is it kind of turns on this very ugly light that this 40-year party of academic institutions raising tuition faster than inflation, the lights have come on, and it's pretty ugly in terms of the price-value trade-off. So I think a lot of us are coming to the recognition that you know, universities have become totally overpriced, and a lot of families are now saying, okay, I am not going to continue to engage in this, this trade-off if I can't have, if I'm only getting the certification, the education, not the experience. And unfortunately, our industry is going to have to face the same economic pressures as every other industry, and we haven't yet come to grips with that. Mm. Um, I think I was in the hallucination phase when you first came on, (laughs) Professor, because I said you were with the uh, Tisch School. I apologize. You're with the Stern School of Business at NYU, uh, so I apologize for that. Yeah. Uh, But and I love the phrase, by the way, the hallucination phase. Um, The Trump administration has decided to revoke the visas of international students who enrolled at universities in online learning for next semester. How do you think that changes the landscape of of what's to come? I mean, yeah, it's our it's our cash cows. It's a million international students, 41 billion dollars in revenue. NYU has 28 percent international students. We I would imagine that's 50% of our cash flow. So at best, this is nothing but a xenophobic and wrong-headed economic devastation of our economy. A half a million jobs created by international students, $40 billion in revenue, some incredibly talented people. And Anderson, I, I think there's something darker here. I think that if you were to take the bluest state within every state, it would be called a college town. In Bloomington, Indiana, Hillary won by 17 points, but in Indiana as a state, she lost by 17. So if you wanted to defund and neuter these sources of truth, these sources of evidence-based research that call the president out on his philosophies, you would go after universities. So I see this as something much darker that Mm. we are allowing the administration to neuter sources of truth and what have been neon blue districts in America. Last time, Professor, we, we spoke, you said something that I, that I remember. You said that I, I think we've kind of stuck our, out the mother of all chins, you said, and the fist of COVID-19 is coming for us. Obviously, the us you're talking about, I think, is the university system of which you are a part. Is, is, has your prediction come to pass? Is it happening? Oh, there's no doubt. We're going to see we're going to see a financial destruction similar to what every other industry that sits shoulder to shoulder in the consumption of the product, whether it's sports, restaurants, or um, 
um, you know, any industry that where you, or travel. It's coming. Unfortunately, we have not cut costs. We are still under the illusion that if we offer labs and studios and welcome people back or invite them back to those college towns, that we justify these extraordinary costs. But no, those fists of stone are coming. It's about time. Hopefully, it'll result. If we spend a fraction of the time, Sanjay, uh, as we do in these protocol meetings, trying to improve the online offering and decrease the delta between online and offline learning, we come out of this crisis stronger and be able to educate people for less money and increase those admit rates such that we could move back to a society where we have more freshman seats and more upward mobility for more great mm. middle-class kids in this country. We, we, we just have a minute, but just really quick, the delta between online versus in-person learning, you just used that phrase. What, how do you calculate that? What is the delta? How, how, how much of a difference is there? Well, there's a lot right now, but there, the reality is if you were to take 50% of the learning, 50% uh, of the classes, maybe where there's more, less interaction, and more actual just teaching, or you could probably take between a third of the half of the classes online and with some improvements in online learning, not really substantially erode the experience. And what that effectively does is it doubles the size of our campuses. Mm. And at my university, UCLA, we could go back from 13% from admittance rates to where the admittance rates were in the 80s and the 90s. So I think wow. this is a huge opportunity to substantially expand the number of freshman seats and again, put universities back in their, their, their role of expanding upward mobility for Americans. Uh, we've got to end it. I'm so sorry, though. Uh, Professor Scott Galloway, thank you. I, by the way, I'm reading uh, your book, Algebra of Happiness. Uh, I'm really into it. I really like it. Uh, you also have a pod, your co-host of a podcast, The Pivot, uh, which I uh, encourage people to, to listen to. Uh, Sanjay, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. We want to thank Dr. Robert Redfield, Dr. Lena Wen, everyone else who joined us tonight. Also, thanks to those of you who submitted questions. If you didn't get your questions answered, the conversation continues. CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.